And wandering around the streets of New York, they got a bit lost, as you do, and, and men tend not to ask for directions. You, you may or may not know about that. And they were lost, and they decided to ask someone on the street uh, for help and for directions. So they approached someone and said, excuse me, um, could you help us with some directions, please? And the New Yorker, in typical, apparently typical New Yorker style, style said, do you know who I am? And the bloke turned to his mate, he said, mate, we're in trouble. We don't know where we are, and this guy doesn't know who he is. <laughs> <laughs> who am I? Who am I? <laughs> well, let's start with the basics. Who are we? Today we're looking at self-image. How do we view ourselves? How do we see ourselves? Who am I is a great question, which some New Yorkers don't seem to know. Let's start with the basics. I am Josh. Oh, that's nice. Some of you might want to just leave it there. Am I my job? Am I my relationships? Am I I'm a father or a husband or a brother? Am I my network? My, these are the peeps I belong to. Am I my hobbies? Am I my sexuality? Who am I? And those are even shallow things. We can go deeper. Am I defined by my fears or my joys? Is that who I am? My motivations, even my habits? Or maybe all of this is just too scary for you and you're the person who says, I'm the guy who gets angry when you ask me deep questions. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> well, who are we? All these things, they contribute to who we are, who, how we view ourselves, how we see ourselves. And society has a huge uh, influence on this. We are sort of pushed into thinking about who we are so often. We define ourselves in so many ways. We have a self-image, a way we view ourselves. You know, animals, I don't know if you've seen on YouTube, when a tiger sees himself in the mirror. Have you ever seen one of those? Get on YouTube, it'll help your life, um, improve your, no it won't. But you see, when an animal sees itself in the mirror, it sees its reflection, it freaks out, right? Because it thinks another tiger is attacking it. It's a great clip to go and see. But we have already have this understanding of the mirror. So when we arrive at the mirror, we don't normally freak out. We go, oh, that's me. And then when we spend a bit of time there, that's when we start freaking out. Oh, no, that's me. <laughs> I, I see who I am. Animals don't have that self-awareness. We have the privilege of being able to think about ourselves, to think about our thoughts. Society spends so much time here pondering how we see ourselves. Of course, this is all connected to the body, the body image. We spoke a little bit to this a while ago, but it's interconnected how we see ourselves, how we see our bodies. Maybe you view your body in a negative way. This begins to affect, kind of begin to affect you. How do you then also view your own thoughts and your own emotions? You may begin to think, oh, I'm just this kind of a person or that kind of a person. And it begins to shape and determine who you are, your own thoughts. The stress and the pressure that society and friends put on us, constantly through social media, we're told that certain images are what's correct. Certain vibes of happy, perfect happiness is what's correct. Certain emotions are bad. 
we're constantly put under pressure in the way we view ourselves. Perhaps your parents have shaped how you view yourself. You grew up in a very unloving environment, an environment where it was abusive, perhaps, has now shaped the way you view yourself on a daily basis. Self-image can be very difficult. And then we raise another harder question, how often or how much should we think about ourselves? Anyone want to try and answer that? <laughs> I don't know. How much should we think about ourselves? When does self-care become self-centeredness? You know, it is good to think about ourselves. You know, if you brush your teeth, that's a great idea. Uh, it's self-care. Should uh, my, uh, I need to have a shower, brush my teeth? Do I need to put diamonds on my teeth? Maybe not. How far do I? How far does self-image go? When does self-care become self-centeredness? And we open up a can of worms. We'll talk about cosmetic surgery, makeup, tattoos, putting horns on your head. Some people think that's very nice. It's very silly. But they may think it's beautiful. Where, 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 does the line, where, where do we draw the line? How, how much should we be even thinking about ourselves? And I would suggest that maybe some of the great stress and problem comes from when we become the center of our universe. It's good to brush your teeth. It's bad to be consumed by your self-image. When we become the center of everything, I think it's a sign that things are falling apart. If you how often do you think about that? When you stand in the mirror, you're not an animal, so you're not scared. Whoa, what's that? I'm shocked. There's a reflection. I know, I know there's me. I exist. But if you stand in the mirror constantly, thinking about every aspect of yourself, is that healthy self-image? What consumes you? Where do you spend your time thinking on these things? And of course, when we talk about the body specifically, self-image isn't just made up of the body, body image, but it's made up of uh, how we think, as I said, how we feel about ourselves. But society idolizes youthfulness, doesn't it? Strive to keep yourself looking young. Don't age gracefully, be young forever. It's a longing to be eternally healthy. In some way, it's correct. You know that aging was part of the fall. Sin entered the world, and what happened? Adam and Eve, you will surely die. Things begin to break down. Aging, in one sense, should be understood that it's not what God wants, ultimately. But when you are sitting in this world and you, you are stuck under aging, you might think, I have to fight this now. That's a depressing thought because, spoiler alert, you can never do it. You can never stay young eternally. Hollywood will tell you you can try. But our longing is to be eternally healthy. That's not a bad longing. It's just pointing to something much greater. It's pointing to one day when Jesus does away with all sin and sadness, all brokenness, all decay. One day we will be eternally glorious. And so it's a hope. It's putting a hope in something temporary and longing for aging to be over. It's a longing that can only be fulfilled in Jesus. 
Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death, is how he puts it. <laughs> he does ask the question, <laughs> I am of dust, I am falling apart slowly or quickly or whatever you might, however quickly or slowly you might be falling apart. Who will deliver me from sin and death? Oh, praise be to God through Jesus who does it. Jesus will deliver me. So we've covered some of these things. Our hope is not in the dust. Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about our bodies being the seed which dies and one day is raised gloriously. What a great hope. The unbeliever can never have this hope. He forever tries to improve his self-image, his body image, but he always ends up in a hopeless place. It's ultimately depressing. Only the believer can know that one day this will all be done away. So therefore, I am rescued from trusting in the temporary and the, and the uh, disappearing. So we do not glory in the seed. We can never be eternally youthful by propping up the seed. Only Jesus can rescue us and our bodies. The body is still a good gift to us, and that's the psalm we read. And so now that we've opened up a can of worms, or many cans of worms, and put them on the table, let's try and go to the scriptures and see what this psalm talks about. The psalm is David talking about his own body. And so what do we do in this current state? In the current state where, yeah, Josh, that sounds wonderful. One day I'll have a great resurrected body. But what do I do currently in the way I view myself and see myself? How do I deal with this now? Or what, what hope is there now? Well, the, the one hope is the glorious eternal hope. The second hope, the second biggest uh, idea is that this belongs, this is a gift from God. It came from Him and it belongs to Him and it can be used to glorify Him. Paul says that the body was meant for the Lord. It belongs to Him. We can worship Him. With it. So let's open, if you've got your Bibles, open Psalm 139. I'm going to maybe depart from the script a little bit here and just look at this psalm together. And then we'll look at Jesus for a moment as we close. When, well, when we come to close. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. This is Paul, uh, uh, David rather, describing God. This, this verse, who's heard this verse before? Oh, Lord, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Anyone heard that before? Anyone seen it on a, on a, a mug? Uh, it's a favorite at, at ladies' conferences. You are enough, girlfriend. Uh, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, most of those conferences are centered around us. I want you to notice in this psalm how David centers his image, his body image, around who God is. That's how this, that's how this psalm actually goes. If you've heard that verse and you see it on the cup, you should add the whole psalm and preach it to yourself. But this is how David describes being in existence in his current body. He says, oh God, you search me and you know me. He is the one who knows me. I don't know myself. <laughs> um, he searches and knows me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You discern, you understand, and even know my thoughts. Sometimes I don't even understand why I say things. If, you, if you've been in any relationship, whether it's a parental one, a spousal one, or just with friends, there are oftentimes you say things you don't even know why you said them. Anyone done that? Or just me? Thank you. A few, few other honest people. Thank you. You know my thoughts. You know the motives of my heart. God, you know me. 
You are acquainted with all my ways. Oh, wow, what a glory. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, you, Lord, know it all together. You hem me in. The Hebrew word there is you besiege me. <laughs> you besiege me. The picture of a city being besieged, surrounded. You know, when, if you've ever been besieged, I don't think any of us has this more medieval thing. But if you were besieged, you can't get out, you can't come in, you're besieged. God's like that. God is around. There's, you cannot get away from God. He has besieged us. <laughs> he besieges me. Oh, glory. Behind, he is behind me and before me. When I look back, he was there. When I look into what is ahead, he is there. More than that, his hand is upon me. He is in my presence. This is God. Wow, I'm beginning to feel more hopeful about who I am because I know the kind of God who he is. Jesus said, no one can pluck them from my hands. His hand is upon me. Such knowledge, this is too wonderful. This is too high. I cannot attain. I can't even understand this. It's too much. Where shall I go? So that is God knows everything about you. He knows all that you do. That's that first section. God knows what you do. But not only that, God knows where you are. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence, from your face, from your gaze? I Should I ascend to the heavens? You are there. Shall I go down into Sheol, into the grave, into the depth? You are there, even there. And of course, the Christian has a greater view of this. Jesus went there, down into the grave. Should I depart? I will be with Christ, Paul says. Should I ascend to the heavens or go to the grave? You are there. God, you are everywhere. Should I take to the wings of the morning and try to run? Should I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea? Even there, you shall still lead me, even when I run from you. Even when I depart from you, you are still there leading me, the hound of heaven chasing me down the ages. There shall your hand lead me. And your right hand shall hold me. Shall, if I say, surely the darkness will cover me. The word cover there is crush. Surely the darkness will crush me. The deep darkness, the valley of the shadow of death. Surely that would crush me and I would be finished and God would be nowhere. No, even there he prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Even under the crushing darkness, you are there. You prepare a table for me in the deep darkness. Surely the darkness will cover me, and the light will become like night. Even the darkness is not darkness to you, and the night is as bright as the day. God knows every circumstance, even the deep darkness, and He is there leading me. I'm definitely feeling more hopeful about who I am. For you formed my inward parts and you knitted me together in my mother's room. There is nothing that God does not know about me. Hallelujah. All my ways are known to him. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. I know them full well. My frame was not hidden from you. He knows I am of the dust. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in the secret place. In the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book 
were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, as yet there was none of them. God knows what you think. God knows what you do. God knows where you are, no matter how deep the darkness. Not only that, God knows what you are. He formed you. He knows what you are. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. And I awake, and still I am with you. How precious to me are your ways, O God. Then he gets what the theologians call imprecatory. (laughs) He has a rage against what's going on around him. God, would you wipe out sinners? God, let evil depart from me. And then he says something beautiful. Oh, God, I hate what you hate. You know that God even knows your desires? He knows what you love and what you hate before you even knew them. David's cries, oh, God, let me know your ways. Give me your thoughts. Let me know your thoughts and your ways. But let me hate evil as you do. Change me. It's a plea for rescue. God, would you rescue me? You're enough, girlfriend. It's not really what the psalm is saying, is it? The psalm is saying God alone is enough. God himself knows the deep darkness. He's there. God knows your inward parts. He knows your desires. He knows your loves. That is such a relief. Search me, he says, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous, deceitful, duplicitous, divided way within me. And lead me in the way everlasting. You know, God knows everything and he's over everything. He knows what we do and we therefore need God's wisdom. Anyone done everything in a perfectly wise way? Just one person. No, no one put their hand up. Just you. Anyone done anything? No, God knows what we do, and yet we can, that's why we need His great wisdom. God knows where we are, and that's why we need His very presence. God knows what you are, therefore we need God's transforming grace. God knows what you think, therefore we need His thoughts. God knows what you love and what you desire, therefore we need God's love. In fact, we need God Himself. God knows everything. And the good news is you have nothing to fear. You do not need to hide from him. You can hide in him. God who made you what you are, gave you a good gift in what you are, you can ponder his ways, walk in them. You can learn to hate what he hates and love what he loves. You do, you do, not, know, you do not fully know yourself. You can't. The world will tell you self-image, know yourself, become the best you. You can't do it without the presence and help of God. You will not do it. And even if you got there, you would be terrified and not like it. You do not fully know yourself, but He does. You cannot dispute Him, 
Let him search you. Let him lead you. He knows you. He knows what is best. Francis Thomas, in his wonderful poem, The Hound of Heaven, said, I fled him. <laughs> I didn't want God to know me. I fled him down the nights and days. I fled him down the arches of the years. This poem goes on and on, and how he ran from God. He thought he did not want to be known by God or let God know him. He runs from God, and what follows is that all his triumphs turn to weeping. It's a beautiful poem. All of his triumphs turn to weeping, and eventually he comes to this, the last stanza where he says, Francis is lost. Francis is lost. And God responds, clasp my hand and come with me. Take my hand, O fondness, O blindness, O weakness, it is I am whom thou seekest. All my fondness, all my desires, all my blindness, which I thought I saw, all my weakness, which I thought was strength, no, none of these. It is the I am, God himself, whom I seekest. Are you chasing down the years, the nights and the days, in your own strength, your own wisdom, your own desires? This is such a wonderful psalm. The pinnacle for me of this psalm is when David gets to this point and he says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The healthiest self-image I think I've ever read about. I praise God because he made me who I am. He knit me together. Yep, I don't understand the deep darkness, the deep struggles. I don't understand my own desires, but I praise you because you, the all-wise, wonderful one who has a plan, who works all things out, who's wiser than me, who's cleverer than me, in the midst of my darkness and brokenness, he knows me and made me. And my, the result is I praise him. Wow. What a self-image. It's counter-cultural. It's not the self-image of I am enough. I praise him because he controls and loves me and knows all things, and still he is sufficient. Imagine that would be our framework for self-image. I praise him because he made me. Not because I'm very, very clever or very, very powerful. I praise him because he's made me exactly for his purpose, exactly for his kingdom, exactly for his glory, not mine. I praise him. Come, God says, clasp my hand and leave behind your fondness, your blindness, and your weakness. David's view of God is shaped, a view of himself is shaped by how he views God. He's searched, he's known, and he's loved. God knows my every part, and he is awesome. God knows my every part. You know, I've got four children and a wife, and I, I don't know myself. And I don't even know them in every part. I don't even know one of those kids in every part. It's, <laughs> it's very confusing. <laughs> we can't even fully understand those even in our closest orb. We can't even fully understand ourselves. God completely understands 7 billion people on the earth and works out in glorious care and love. 
what a burden to try and perfectly know and understand my four kids and wife and love them and understand them perfectly. I could just never do it. If you know how to do that, please come and tell me. I would love to know. We could never do it. How secure, how beautiful to trust in God who actually has the wisdom and the power to do all of that, to know everyone. And you know what? His purposes and his goodness is always going to be better than anything Josh could have come up with. Praise God for the rescuing grace of Jesus to my kids and my wife and all those who know me. <laughs> I'm sorry for who I am. <laughs> I praise God for who he is. He is altogether good, altogether wise. He knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning. And so my view of God can only help me think less of myself in many ways. My skills are not impressive. My thoughts are not impressive. My wisdom is not impressive. My goodness is not very impressive. I praise God that I don't have to be. Yet my whole person rejoices because the one who is infinitely wise, infinitely powerful, infinitely good, has graced my life and is leading me and working in and through me and is infinitely better than anything I could have ever done. I am truly satisfied, flourishing, and made whole in Him. That's the source of true personal uh, wholeness and health, what you want to call self-image. We're almost flipping it. It's like you become less aware of yourself. You become more delighted in God. And so what role will self-forgetfulness have in human flourishing? There's, some, there's a big role for forgetfulness. It's like being in love. Do you know about, about being in love? Anyone experience that? What happens, when you, what happens when you fall in love? Other things start being less important, right? Things are not a burden. I know, I know someone who's sitting in this room <laughs> who likes a girl and went, flew somewhere to see her and then wanted to hang out and spend time. It's no problem. I buy the ticket, I go there. And then what happened? They were going, going somewhere and they were supposed to go somewhere in a quick one-hour uh, trip in a car and there was massive uh, freeway jams. They were stuck for six or seven hours in the car. What a joy. <laughs> you mean I get to sit here for six hours and we might, you know, maybe my uh, pinkies will touch me. <laughs> Something, you know, it'll, it's going to be so, so good. If you tell me I'm going to sit in six hours, I'll get very grumpy pretty quickly. When you're in love, that's a, that's a huge bonus. That's like, yes, I get to sit here and, and we get to be next to each other for six hours. It's a pure, pure joy. You forget yourself. You forget things that are difficult. Uh, I don't have, uh, for those of you who are students and in love, you don't have petrol money or train money. It doesn't matter. You just start walking. You know, walk, walk 12 kilometers to see her. No problem. Things, when you're in love, everything else doesn't matter or matters less. It doesn't matter how long the trip is, how difficult it is. And so we can begin to find meaning in, even in those things. Like, this feels great. This six-hour trip felt really great. I'm really pumped. This is the purpose of my life. <laughs> I just want to be here. All my other purposes have gone. I'm taking off uni. I don't go to lectures anymore. I just go on long dates. Sorry, parents, I'm, not trying, I'm trying to help your children. <laughs> when you're in love, 
Nothing is too hard. You forget yourself. You know, identity, and that shapes your identity. And it is good for you in many ways to forget about yourself. Ultimately, it can backfire when that becomes an idol. So that's just a warning to that person who's here, who was in that story. It can become an idol when it's all consuming. <laughs> Falling in love can become an idol because those people are not Jesus. They aren't the source of love. Do you know that? Imagine falling so in love with Jesus that sitting next to Jesus for six hours becomes too beautiful to you, that everything else doesn't matter. Do you sit next to Jesus like that? Or is Jesus someone you sort of engage with from time to time and tolerate him a little bit? Or is Jesus someone whom you love? He is the source of all love. And then all things become so much more beautiful. Loving your neighbor as yourself becomes easy. You mean I get to, I get to love Jesus? I get to... Do this for Jesus. It's a great joy to me. Jesus is the source of healthy self-forgetfulness. No one else is. Nothing else is. Nothing else matters. Turns out Metallica was right in the early 90s. For those of you who remember that. <laughs> Nothing else matters when we are near him. All right. Let's bring this to a close. Jesus, well, let's, let's read this. There is no healthy knowledge of yourself that does not begin with the knowledge of God. The knowledge of myself only reveals that I need the grace of God for everything, that I need new mercies every morning, that I need the bread of life daily, that I need the infinitely wise one, the infinitely wise God to lead me. You know, in Exodus 3, there's a story where Moses meets God. Before this, Moses had thought he was a big deal, right? Remember, do you remember the story of Moses? He grew up in Pharaoh's house. He thought he was a big shot, really well educated. And then he sees the people of Israel being oppressed. He takes it upon himself to go and kill someone <laughs> to try and free them. And he thinks he's going to be the deliverer. I will do this. I'm sufficient. I'll get the job done. And he very quickly finds out he's insufficient. So he moves from this place of being, I'm sufficient, I'm enough, I'll get the job done. He runs away and hides, and he gets to this position of feeling, I'm not enough, I can't do this. And when God arrives to speak to him, that's the position he's in. See how Moses, if you want to call self-images, fluctuated quite a lot, right? He's gone from, I can do this, I'll take care of business, to I can't do this at all. Maybe you're somewhere in between one of those spaces where either in some way you think you can do everything or in some way you feel you're not enough for anything. This is where Moses was. It'd be an interesting case, I think, to study if you were a, a psychologist to have Moses sit down and talk through his process <laughs> of self-image. Moses comes to the place where he says, I'm not enough. And it's in that place that God comes to him. 
And four or five times, Moses repeats that. He says, God, God says, I want, I want you to go now, Moses. And he says, but who, do, who, who um, he says, who am I? He uses that phrase, who am I? Remember the question we started with? Who am I? Moses uses it. Who am I to do this? Surely not me. He makes more. He says, I can't speak. I, I, can't, I don't have this capability. And, and God says, okay, Moses, Aaron can go with you. We'll let him do some of the speaking because it's not about you or Aaron anyway. Moses persists with questions of who am I, who am I, who am I. Eventually God gets a little bit upset and says, Moses, you know what? It was never dependent on you. Just tell them I am sent you. That's, that's what's going on here. You were never enough, Moses. The plan was not that you would be enough. The plan is that God would turn up. That was the plan. The plan was not that you were clever enough, Moses. So, yes, you're not clever enough. I already knew that, Moses. I knew you're not clever enough. That's why I'm choosing you. <laughs> I knew you couldn't speak well enough. I know you're not powerful enough, Moses. I didn't send you there because we were relying upon you to get the job done. Four or five times Moses says, I'm not enough. And God says, yes, that's exactly the point. Thank you, Moses, for telling me what I already knew. Thanks, Moses. My plan was never that you would be sufficient. My plan was never that I would depend on you. The plan was that you would depend on me. The plan was, I am is going to do it. I am not enough, but Jesus is enough. I am not clever enough, but the source of all wisdom is rescuing me. Wow, that is good news. I am not strong enough, but the source of all strength is rescuing me. That is good news. I am not emotionally stable enough, but the source of all peace is rescuing me. I am not enough, but the one who is enough is rescuing me. Well, that sounds awesome and amazing, but how do we get there? Well, it's part of a process God takes us on. You might be like Moses going through that process where either you thought you were enough or now you think you're not enough. It's wonderful to reach that place because now you are ready to trust God. You are ready to trust Him. You know, Jesus puts it like this. When they come to Jesus to test Him and they say, should we pay the taxes to Caesar? Do you remember the story? They're trying to trick Him. And Jesus takes the coin and he says, whose image is on this coin? And they say, oh, it's Caesar's. And he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And they marvel. That is such a profound story when you think about it. They're saying, he's saying, take this money and honor Caesar with it. Give it to him. It's got his image on it. Pay his homage. Pay what's due to him. But take what is God's and give it to him. What is the image? Where is the image of God placed? Genesis 1. We are made in the image of God. Give the image of God back to God. The image of God is upon us. We were made in his image. It belongs to him. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to him. Give to God what is God's. Self-image. The way, even the way you view yourself. God, I, I'm wrestling through every way in which I view myself. No, nope, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. God, you have purpose in it. I give it back to you. 
you made me. Not only that, the glorious joy that I get to worship him with it. This, I get to honor him. I get to worship and adore him by surrendering this back to God. Honor should be paid to God. Honor him with your image. And Jesus came into this world and did that very same thing. He surrendered his body in obedience to the Father. He took his body and he surrendered it to the cross. He was disfigured. His appearance was so marred beyond that of human semblance and his form was beyond recognition. He understands what it means to be one from whom others hide their face. He had no formal majesty in him that we should look to him. He was not beautiful that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Perhaps you've experienced that, that people hide their face from you. Perhaps you even suffer with appearance. Jesus understands he was disfigured, and people hid their face from him. He was not esteemed. Jesus knows what it's like not to be esteemed. We do not need to search for our esteem in this world or in these things or within ourselves. Our esteem does not come from ourselves. He understands what it means to be one who men hide their face from. But surely he bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows. And we esteemed him, yet we esteemed him as stricken, smitten and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the disfiguration that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. Give your image to God. We can do that by looking to Jesus who surrendered his body to glorify the Father and to, re to redeem us. It was through this very act that Jesus redeems our own broken image. Our broken bodies, our broken minds, our broken emotions, all the ugly parts are redeemed. And now we get to honor and worship God. We get to worship Him back with our bodies, with our minds, with our strength, all those broken parts knowing that all of our sin, weakness, and failures will one day be wiped away forever and raised in imperishable glory. As we bring this home, it was in the garden at the dawn of creation where Adam and Eve were made in God's image. But they were also not like God in so many ways. God set them limits. They did not know everything as we do not know everything. They could not be everywhere as we cannot be everywhere. They were not all powerful as we do not have all strength and power. They were not all wise. And this was the very part of the temptation that Satan came to with them saying, you will be like God. 
That was the temptation. They were made in God's image, yet they were not like him in many ways. And Satan came and said, you can be like God. You can be self-sufficient. You can know everything you need to know. You can be all who you can be. Sounds like our society, doesn't it? You can do all you want to do. The scripture teaches the opposite. You do not have any of that within you. You are dependent upon God to know who you are. That was the very temptation in the garden to become like God. Google feeds our desire to be self-sufficient and to know everything. We think and want to be self-sufficient. Social media feeds our desire to be limitless in the amount of friends we can have when we cannot be that. FaceTime feeds our desire to want to be everywhere at once when we cannot be that. These things are all pushing us to be like God when we cannot be. We were never the center of life, the universe, or anything. Human identity is defined by its relationship to who God is, the infinitely wise and powerful one. That is good news. Terrible news is that you have to be enough. That is terrible news and crushing news. God, I pray that we would give our image back to you. God, this belongs to you. Help us to worship with you, with our bodies, our thoughts, with every part of us. God, may we be able to say with David, we praise you because you've made us and because you know us, because we are fearfully and wonderfully made. May we render unto God what is God's and not hold it for ourselves or think that we can sufficiently do so. God, help us to give our image to you. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to Jesus be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.